We work a lot in the United States, at least compared to other developed countries. Roughly 10% more hours on average than the Canadians, 20% more hours than the French, and a whopping 25% more than the Germans. Today, we're going to explore why we work so much and the implications for whether we can strike the right work-life balance over the course of longer careers. But we're going to start with an even more fundamental question. Would we work if we didn't need money? That's a really important question, and I think it's a question that's being enacted during this last year or so during what we, what we now call the Great Resignation. That's David Bluestein. He's a professor with the Department of Counseling, Developmental, and Educational Psychology at Boston College. He studies the psychology of work. Starting in 2013, Bluestein spent six years interviewing Americans from all walks of life about their experience at work. And he found, even before the pandemic and the Great Resignation, that Americans thought their life was out of whack. What we found in these interviews is that people felt a sense that, um, that, that work was eroding right in front of them. And what they were remarking about was the loss of protections, the increase in the authority and power of employers, and the lack of um, a voice that many people had. They were, they were really speaking about a sense of precarity. The pandemic and the social and economic disruptions caused by it quickly became a focal point for widespread concerns about work. The disruptions at work were extraordinary. What kind of situation are you in in terms of money in the bank? Same as everybody. You're just constantly worried about, like, can I make this payment? I mean, we had 15% unemployment within three weeks. We had people waiting on food lines within three weeks in the United States. So April 1st, are you going to make a mortgage payment or not? Good question. We did see much more government intervention, um, much more of a safety net being kind of ad hoc um, created to support people, which was much needed and very, very helpful. And according to Bluestein, the enhanced unemployment funding provided a real-world experiment on what choices people might make if they had other financial options. What we saw was people began to leave bad jobs and try to figure out something else that they wanted to do. And I think that's part of the pathway toward the Great Resignation, the fact that people did have resources. But the question of what we work if we didn't uh, need to is, is, a, is a real fundamental human question. Um, I don't think we would work as hard as we are now if we didn't have this kind of socialization toward work. It's actually a bit of a conundrum. If you look at the data, some of the people who put in the most hours are people with more financial resources and more personal choices. Just ask the economist John Maynard Keynes and his descendants. A century ago, Keynes famously predicted that by the time his grandchildren were of working age, they would be working in the era of a 15-hour work week. This would be thanks to, in part, technological advances and resource abundance that would make work less of a necessity. People would rationally trade in their greater productivity for more leisure time. We're living in that era now. And while Keynes didn't have grandchildren, he did have descendants. Here's NPR's David Kestenbaum interviewing Nicholas Humphrey about whether he was living Keynes's prediction. And your relationship to John Maynard Keynes? <laughs> okay. Yes. Um, 
I'm Maynard Keynes's sister's grandson. You are the closest thing we have to his grandkids. Yes, we're kind of ghost grandchildren. Humphrey is a retired professor. I asked how many hours a week he used to work, not 15. Oh, I probably worked about 15 a day. and so, 15 a day? Uh, that, that's over 100 hours a week. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I worked till like from, from breakfast till, till I went to bed at night. Keynes's descendants worked a lot. As it turns out, so did Keynes. To quote Nicholas Humphrey, the self-proclaimed ghost grandchild of Keynes, Maynard, of course, died from working too hard. His heart ran out. He wasn't sleeping. He was overdoing it all the time. That might be relatable to many of us who have resources to make decisions about how much we work. Not the part about working ourselves to death, hopefully, but we still feel compelled to work hard. Long hours to support ourselves and our families, and many of us find value and purpose in this hard work. Here's psychologist David Bluestein again, speaking about his interviews with workers before the pandemic. Throughout my research, I have found that, yes, people find enormous meaning and purpose in their work lives. There were people who described uh, being able to push back and create better work conditions. People who described the importance of, of unions and other collective activities as a way to help them have better work lives. You know, when, you, when you're engaged in some really interesting work, it could actually function as not just a um, positive experience, it could also help compensate for other areas of your life where you might be struggling. As we move in the direction of figuring out what that purposeful work might look like in our lives, we want to understand what has compelled so many of us in America to work so hard. On today's episode, we're going to go back through some of our history to look for answers, ones that might help us understand how we got here and how we might work more sustainably over the course of our longer lives. From the Stanford Center on Longevity, Century Lives is here to start the conversation. I'm your host, Ken Stern. The story of hard work in America is as old as the country itself, and the value of hard work might even be thought of as an element of American virtue. To quote Ben Franklin, a plowman on his legs is higher than a gentleman on his knees. Work in the American tradition provides a sense of dignity, and hard work gets rewarded with upward mobility. Shiny shoes, sir? Ah, no time, Sonny. I have important business at City Hall. That exchange between work and the American dream has been famously captured by the rags-to-riches stories of Horatio Alger Jr. Alger wrote dozens of enormously popular books published in the second half of the 19th century, and he spun a remarkably consistent tale. A poor but good-hearted boy eventually achieved social and economic advancement by exhibiting the virtues of hard work, honesty, and altruism. Alger's most famous story which was adopted for the musical Shine, follows a penniless shoeshine boy. It may be just a shoeshine, but I am here to say that when you've got a new shine, you're well on your way to keep your day from lacking in opportunity. Just try a bit of blacking provided by me. By the end of the story, the protagonist has worked his way from shoeshiner Wall Street entrepreneur. These Alger stories epitomize not only the American dream mythology, but the concept of the Protestant work ethic. That idea comes to us by way of the German sociologist Max Weber. 
1904, just two decades before Keynes predicted the 15-hour work week, Weber published his most famous book, The Protestant Work Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. Weber put forth a hypothesis that the Protestant Reformation not only changed how and why people worked, but it contributed to the rise of successful capitalist economies. I spoke with economic historian Jared Rubin to help us put the pieces together. Can you give us a little bit of a brief on like Weber and what he had to say? Weber uh, mainly focused on uh, ideas put forth by John Calvin and then kind of became enshrined in Calvinist doctrine that particularly focused on predestination. This idea that there were cer certain people that were part of the elect. And the elect were people that were predestined to go you know, to heaven. And you know, so on the surface, you might think, well, why, why would you want to work hard? Why would you want to do anything? You're either predestined or not. But right. I'll tell you, that turned... was my immediate reaction. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. hey, I'm predestined. <laughs> you know, I might as well take the rest yeah. of my life off one way or the other. Exactly. The yeah, yeah. So, so the way Calvin took it and the way Weber interpreted it was that you wanted to show that you were part of the elect. And to show that you were part of the elect, that, that meant that you had earthly success. It's all a bit counterintuitive. To prove they were part of the elect, early Protestants adopted a relationship to work that would secure a place for them in heaven. It meant fulfilling their worldly duties by toiling away, acquiring capital, and wisely investing. If that sounds familiar, it's because it has distinct echoes in everything from Ben Franklin to Horatio Alger. And according to Weber, countries that adopted this religious outlook and way of working saw greater economic success. When you look at the, the leading countries in the world since the Reformation in terms of, you know, the leading um, economies in the world, rather, you know, it begins with the Dutch who adopted the Reformation and then become the world's leading economy. Then it transfers to Britain, which was a, a Protestant nation, then the U.S., which was a majority Protestant. So there is, there is some correlation there. Some correlation, but it's not the full picture. There's there has been a, a fairly long tradition uh, debunking some of Weber's claims. You know, a capitalist spirit predated Protestantism. I mean, even within Europe, you know, the northern Italian city-states were little capitalist enclaves. Um, you see it certainly in the Middle East in its golden age. So, yeah, this idea that there was something unique to Protestantism that led to what Weber called a capitalist spirit has since been debunked. And, yeah, I think on, on numerous margins. But whether it started in the Protestant Reformation or earlier, the religious calling of hard work was embraced by early American settlers and their progeny. So um, can you just talk a little bit about the cultural ethic of hard work and how it developed in the United States and its, and its role over time? I, I do think that this is where, if you're going to look for evidence in favor of Weber's theory, it's the early Puritan settlers, at least in New England, that provide one of his best examples. Namely, these were people that worked hard, were highly religious. Um, they were people who often adopted this, this, new, this new sect of what, what at the time was very radical uh, Protestantism. And you know, there, there, there is reason to believe that these, these norms, even though most people who even within half a century uh, after the Puritans came were, were no longer Puritan by any means, but especially in New England, the, uh, the political elite were Puritan for for quite some time. Uh, there, there's reason to believe uh, that that some of these values might have diffused through the um, 
through the population. And to this extent, um, that's where Weber might have the most bite. Rubin says that recent studies have found that these Puritan values may have diffused throughout the country, particularly during the 19th century as settlers began claiming Western lands. The type of people that move out to the frontier often have these types of values too. They're more individualistic. They, they value hard work, thing, things like this. And th this is actually still seen in those places today that, that we're on the frontier. So, you know, these values then it become, you know, we, we think of Puritanism mainly as a New England thing, but certain aspects of those values, um, there's reason to believe spread throughout the, the country as, as the country itself grew. Religion of both the earthly and heavenly varieties came together to inspire hard work. So think of think of it as a river with a lot of different tributaries. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Yes. What what else sort of drove that American ethic uh, that uh, of the importance of work and right. uh, individualism? Well, I think a, a big thing in the and there's been a lot of recent work on um, mobility in in kind of, so both social and economic mobility. You know the the capacity for one from. The bot that grows up in the bottom quartile of the income distribution to eventually be in the top income of the income distribution, at least prior to 1900, the the United States had much significantly more economic and social mobility than Europe. But the opportunities for economic advancement that drew generations of immigrants to America have gradually decayed, along with the incentives associated with hard work. All the data certainly suggests that the U.S. became a much less mobile country in the 20th century when you have entire generations of people who do work hard but don't end up moving up the, the social or economic scale because of it, you know, eventually those cultural norms change. But Americans remain, still work pretty hard sure. compared to other countries yes. and even compared to the past. How, how do you square those two things? Are we just unhappy? Because um, we have to work hard. And... <laughs> I don't think so. So, I mean, I think one, okay, so one extremely robust result from the, the literature on culture in general is that cult, cultural traits persist much more strongly than just about anything else, even institutions. And even as the world has changed immensely and as the world, yeah, as institutions have changed, you can still see this cultural residue. So I think the, the best explanation for this is this is this belief, you know, we'll call it the American dream belief or this belief in hard work, that hard work pays off, whatever you want to call it, which had its roots in the 18th and I think particularly 19th centuries r relative to certainly the old world where a lot of people had come from or their parents or grandparents had come from. There really was this idea that in the United States you could, you know, you could rise and it was supported by, by the evidence. This is something that, you know, in, in many respects, uh, we have, you know, grandparents that that lived in that period where this was still the case. This is something that does not go away within just a few generations. As much as the story of the American dream might persist, there is data to suggest that it's much harder, though not impossible, to climb the social ladder in the United States today. A team of researchers from Harvard found that upward economic mobility has been declining for the last 80 years. To put it another way, Horatio Alger might be writing rags-to-rags -rags books now, 
as the likelihood of one of his characters climbing into the middle class has declined markedly over the last century and a half. When psychologist David Bluestein traveled around the country interviewing workers about the precarity they felt in their work environments, this is what he heard. That hard work was beginning to be associated more with exploitation than opportunity and reward. Hard work pays off for some, but by no means for everyone. Historians say that the universal acceptance of the importance of hard work in the United States started to erode a half century ago. Some tie it to the countercultural moment of the 1960s, but was also coincident with the beginning of the decline of economic mobility in this country. Why should we work so hard, the question seems to be, if the return is not something better for my children and their children. We have seen strong echoes of this jarring question in the Great Resignation, where millions of Americans have questioned their choices and society's options and have asked whether there is a better way. So do we just throw out the idea of hard work if society can't perform on its promise of social advancement? Is there another way forward? We spoke with Aaron Beninov, an economic historian and social theorist at Syracuse University who studies work and unemployment. He gave us another picture of the future to consider, one by way of the distant past. I always ask my students, you know, when, when I was teaching in Chicago, I'd be like, how long have modern humans been around? Because it's not a number that people typically know that well. And the estimates are around 200,000 years, let's say, 200, 250,000 years. So, you know, that's modern, whatever they say, kind of anatomical homo sapiens sapiens. And, um, you know, it's problematic to, to study modern hunter-gatherers to try to understand how we lived when we were all foragers, you know, in this long period of our past. But the key point is just to say that this is the vast majority of our history, right? The first 190,000 years of our 200,000-year history were lived that way. Uh, and with the caveats that it's not an exact match, when we study modern hunter-gatherers, and of course there's fewer and fewer of them, what we learn is that they really valued, it's hard to call it free time, right? Because they wouldn't necessarily have seen it that way. But they spent a lot of time doing nothing. They spent a lot of time sitting around, telling each other stories, playing jokes and games, and just hanging out. And um, they clearly valued that activity a lot. And they thought, it seems anyway, I think, you know, I think all of these claims can be contested to some extent, but they thought more in terms of sufficiency than optimality, right? Like they live their lives trying to find a sufficient amount of food so that they can have their freedom and do whatever they wanted uh, rather than saying, hey, you know, like in Max Weber's story, you know, if I work all day, I can collect so many berries and so many roots and hunt so much game in this area. And I'm just going to try to maximize um, those returns to my activity. People didn't think that way. Beninov and other thinkers have divided these time periods into categories, pre-scarcity, scarcity, and post-scarcity. The first 190,000 years of human history before agriculture, this is the period of pre-scarcity, a time when people accumulated just enough to survive. The next period, the one that includes Max Weber's story of accumulation and growth, they refer to this one as marked by scarcity. Fast forward to the last 5,000 years, this tiny fraction of our history, when people worked a lot um, 
and you know we're very focused on survival and everything was about um being able to get enough to live was always in question that's sort of the idea or today's kind of market dependent society where people are very insecure or a lot of people are very insecure about their ability to make a living um you have all these people in academia who are like adjunct lecturers that's just a version of something you know precarious labor across the economy what what do you say to someone um some people i've talked to over the years like arthur brooks if you know of him um pete wainer who who think that what people really want is the opportunity to work hard and get ahead and that's really the system they want they want institutions get out of the way of, of that uh, how do you how do you react to sort of that view um and accepting that they probably dislike the inequities and the lack of mobility of society and think opportunities to work hard and get ahead is the way to do it. Um, yeah. What do, you say to, what do you say to Arthur and Pete? I think that, the, first of all, the idea that people think that, you know, effort should be rewarded and that people who work harder should kind of get more than those who don't. You know, that's there's a human interest in fairness, right? Uh, especially fairness of kind of, you know, um, responsibilities in a way and, and the connection between those and rewards. I think that goes very deep. You know, I would never critique that or criticize that. I think what's come to light in the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, um, across a pretty wide part of the population is the record, you know, when I was younger, everyone would say it's all about equality of opportunity. And that's kind of what you're talking about, right? Let's, let's level the playing field and give everyone the same opportunities. Um, but what that doesn't tell us is like, you know, in the 1950s, the, the ratio between, you know, the CEO's income and the income of the median worker was much smaller. And now, and even during the pandemic, it's exploded at companies like Amazon, uh, and Tesla and so on. And so it's like, you know, equality of opportunity and the meritocracy, it, it turns out not to be what people said it was going to be, right? And you say, oh, they would criticize the inequalities. But if we start talking about that, we see, you know, it's a pretty big problem. It's not just a minor problem with that vision. You know, a society that rewards the superstar 1% is kind of telling 99% of people that they've failed in life, you know, that they're not doing well. And a society that's built around these kind of relative rankings where those at the top are good, and those below that are bad, you know? I mean, that that's a pretty powder keg-like society, right? And it reinforces this idea, the very worst version of the Protestant work ethic, which isn't work hard and get ahead, i.e. 90% 90, 90 of people are doing well. It's, you know, work hard and get ahead, the 1% of people who do well are the good and the chosen, and everyone else is, you know, in some way condemned. So. I think that's a terrible model for society. In place of rank-based society, Beninov imagines a society in which people can figure out what might inspire them outside of a market-based reward system. Studies of motivation really show that it's much better to live in a society that clears the space for people's intrinsic motivations to come out. You know, the motivations they derive from their own enjoyment and pleasure in the activities of work that they're doing. Those are the happiest people, people who can experience flow in the course of their work. Um, I think it's really a really important concept. And, you know, as someone who writes for a living, you know, when you get good at writing and then you feel that feeling of like the, the words just flowing out of your fingers, like that's, a, that's an incredibly joyful feeling 
But as soon as I think about like, oh, am I going to get tenure? You know, what kind of, you know, what like as soon as you start thinking about it in terms of the kind of um, monetary rewards, the ranking rewards, there's a lot of studies that show it's very hard to maintain that intrinsic enjoyment of your work, that intrinsic motivations are crowded out by extrinsic and money motivations. So I would like to get back to a world like that, that, that gives people the basis to feel secure, like I'm doing my part, you know, I'm doing this and, and um, I'm going to be okay. And that removes the security concerns and lets people really follow their passions and kind of unfold that joy in work that I think is really important. And that I think people also need a lot, ultimately need a lot of free time to figure out what those passions are and what their intrinsic motivations are as well. So there's a real link between those. So how do we get there? Ben Knob and other thinkers like John Maynard Keynes have imagined living in what they call a post-scarcity world, one in which people have some basic security and perhaps do not need to work as hard. It all may sound idealistic or unobtainable, but it's the world that Keynes imagined not so long ago, and it already has strong echoes in the four-day work week being implemented in Iceland and by some American companies and in the flexible work cultures of many EU nations. Whether it's because we have incredible technological and material cornucopia and abundance, so whatever you want, you can have, or whether it's a kind of renewed adjustment between our expectations of what we can have um, and what's available, so a kind of new form of sufficiency that either of those might be a pathway towards a kind of post-scarcity world where people are not so worried, they work enough to get what they need, and then they have a lot of freedom to do what they, what they want after that. In many ways, Beninov's version of the working world is rather different than Max Weber's Protestant work ethic. But in Beninov's vision of work, there's the possibility of longer and more sustainable careers. If you look back to the 70s, what you'll find is that um, the institutions trying to figure out what should our future look like now that unemployment is rising, growth is slowing. You know, some people were saying, well, we're just going to need early retirement. And other people were saying, yeah, but if people are living longer, like what does that actually mean? Maybe the other, the other way to think about it is to introduce more leisure over the life course and also education that people should be able to like learn and transform who they are and take periods of time to work and not to work over the course of their lives. Because the idea that, you know, you should work, 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 and then spend 20 years of your life where you're just expected to kind of enjoy yourself in old age, that might last quite a long time. You know, those things might not work economically and they might not be enjoyable or like a meaningful life path for people in an age of greater longevity. So I think already in the 70s, people were calling that into question. I think those questions are recurring today. In the last few decades, the modern American workplace has become a place of scrutiny. But for most Americans, work provides an important ballast in their life. And when asked by Gallup, if you are free to do either, would you prefer to have a job outside the home or would you prefer to stay at home by a landslide of more than two to one margin, Americans would rather be at work. It may not be bringing us closer to God, as Weber would have it, but work, and especially good predictable work, plays an important role in helping people find purpose and balance in life.
But the American workplace has gone off the rails in the last half century. Working nine to five, as Dolly Parton described it over 40 years ago, is now more typically working nine to seven, since the percentage of Americans working over 50 hours a week has skyrocketed. Yet real wages have largely been flat, even as the productivity of American workers has almost doubled over that period. No doubt Keynes would be horrified to see that workers have exchanged their increased productivity for less leisure time, more precarity in work, and no more money. It doesn't have to be that way. We might not be on a path towards the 15-hour work week, but there are endless opportunities to make longer careers more productive, more balanced, and more healthy. Whether it be predictable scheduling laws, more flexible work rules to support workers providing care, greater bargaining equality between companies and workers, or perhaps even a drive by businesses to reduce hours. But all of that begins with forging a new cultural consensus that being a good and productive worker is not always associated with grueling hours and FaceTime with the boss. If nothing else, the pandemic and the big quit has taught us that. Next week on the podcast, we ask, why are so many people changing jobs? And how should we think about declining job tenure in this country? I hope you'll join us. The producers of Century Lives are Carrie Thompson, Aaron Slomsky-Pritz, and Cameron Chertavian. Music for this episode was provided by Ramtin Arablouei and Audio Network. Special thanks to Stephen Malenga of the Manhattan Institute, who contributed to the content of this episode. Archival audio from NPR... Roger Anderson Music, 9 to 5, and CBS News. Century Lives is a production of the Stanford Center on Longevity, where our mission is to support ideas and research so that century-long lives are healthy and rewarding ones. You can find out more about us at longevity.stanford.edu. Support for the Stanford Center on Longevity comes from the Annenberg Foundation, dedicated to addressing the critical issues of our time through innovation, community, compassion, and communication. Thanks for listening. I'm Ken Stern.